It's been our tradition here at Parkway on the first Sunday of November um, after All Saints Day to look at the life of a saint and um, learn from his or her life. And my plan is to do that, but not this Sunday. Um, some have asked me, and, and it will come, but not today. I didn't want to lose the momentum of where we have been and where we're going. So um, we are going to um, be opening one of the final visions that dominates the last two chapters of the Bible found in Revelation chapter 21. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn there because I am going to read a rather lengthy section of text um, that has this final vision in it because we are going to be looking at its, at, at its glory this morning. Um, that's Revelation chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through the end of the chapter. Now let me ask you in honor of God's word if you would stand. This is a vision that was given to the Apostle John while on the island of Patmos, um, banished there because of his faith in Jesus. This is what he writes and what he sees. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, gl uh, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth burial, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and streets of the city was pure gold, translucent or transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives, its, gives it 
light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Such is the reading of God's word. You can take your seat. I feel of a great weight this morning because it's my responsibility to explain this to you in a way that exalts the Lord. Let me ask for prayer. Father, I come to you and and just first of all acknowledge that no eye has seen and no ear has heard what you have prepared for your people. And I pray more than anything else that you would inspire within your people a deep longing and a hope for what lies ahead, for the future that has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ, that the future that is being worked out right now through your Holy Spirit and a future that will one day become a reality. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us to hear and understand and help me to bear the what I feel is a weight of trying to not just explain, but uphold and exalt your son and your work in the process of explaining this vision. So we just ask for your help this morning. Help us to worship you in our hearts as we come to see a bit more the glimpse of where we're headed in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to start by asking you a question. When's the last time that you had a perfect day. I am speaking relatively, but um, when's the last time that you had a day that was free from anxiety and worry, where there were no regrets, a day that you felt fullness and didn't feel the nagging sense of lack like there was something missing, a day that you didn't feel the constraints of time or deadlines, a day that you wanted to just freeze and last forever. When's the last time you had one of those days? Now, theologically speaking, I understand that every day, both good and bad, are a gift. And therefore, we should, we're to give thanks for each day, whether good or bad. And I also understand that God is working out his perfect providential purposes in every day. So that being set aside, in terms of human experience, those days in which we find ourselves uncontaminated by anxiety and worry and, and pressures of time, and consequently times in which we feel fullness and no lack, those days are wonderful but exceedingly rare. At least they are for me. But there are times and days that I can look back on, just a handful, that I could almost label, again, generally speaking, in terms of experience, as near-perfect days. One day in particular stands out in my mind in which uh, my wife and I took our youngest son, Isaac, who was around three at the time. It was a spring day. It was in the mid-70s. wasn't a breath of wind, not a cloud in the sky. And at the last minute, we decided, hey, let's take Isaac to Fairytale Town in Sacramento. 
Um, it was just in uh, the Lampark area where um, I had relatives who used to live. So we took them there to Fairy Tale Town. Now, Fairy Tale Town is the place that my mother took me when I was about three years old um, to a place that is a very much a happy place in my memory. So for us to take my youngest son there, three, and watch him like squealing with delight as he's sliding down Mr. Rabbit's hole, Peter Rabbit's hole, or uh, running the crooked mile, or sliding down this big slide that comes out of a shoe. It's all, all fairy tale themes. In the same place that I experienced that as a kid was just awesome. Both of us just felt filled up. We just couldn't get enough of that day with perfect weather, not a lick of wind, perfect temperatures, and my son just enjoying the same place that I loved. And then to top it all off, we washed it down with a few corn dogs and a Coke. If there's anything that makes a day perfect, it's corn dogs and, and a soda. And I remember commenting to Deanna at that time, because here now I'm, I'm a, in a place with rich memories for me that I loved, with the people that I loved experiencing joy, I said to my wife, I said, this was the perfect day. The sad part about the perfect day is it always comes to an end. Night fell and a new day began that wasn't so perfect. That the perfect day on the rare occasion that they actually come. It's like a vapor. It comes for a moment, and you taste it, but then it's gone. And I've also found that you can't plan those days. You can't create those days. Um, I've learned by experience, because every time I try to plan the perfect day, most of the time it ends up taking a nosedive into the pit of failure. <laughs> Everything turns sideways, and part of it because I put so much expectation on it. They almost surprise you out of nowhere. Not something we can plan or create or make happen. And when you have it, it's just a vapor of a moment that you have and then it's gone. But what I want to talk about this morning is the fact that our Father, our Father in His power and wisdom and love has secured for us the perfect day that is on the horizon of history. And it is the main truth that the entire Bible and history itself flows toward is that perfect day. And it is the day on which the cravings of the redeemed will finally be satisfied when we experience in our future the place we call home. Now, we have already looked at the fact that our home, future home, will be a physical place filled with the redeemed and perfected people. Those are the first two. But above all else, the perfect day and our future home is the place where God's presence is experienced. That from beginning to end, that is the truest definition of home, is to be reconnected with the presence of God. That was true in the Garden of Eden, which is above all else, a place created for man to enjoy God. That above all else, in the promises to Abraham, it was a promise of the return of God's presence to his people. That above all else, the, the work of the cross and the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection was about bringing us back into the presence of God after cleansing us from sin. 
that at the end of the day, above all else, home is about the presence of God. And that's our focus, is what we as his people will experience on the day that we experience the perfect day. And the best place that I know to talk about what we will experience in the presence of God is this final vision that dominates the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Now there are some, if you didn't catch it when I read it, it's a big, elaborate description of a great city, the New Jerusalem. There are some who take or interpret this great, awesome city in a literal fashion. That is, that there will actually be a physical city squared, about 1,500 miles squared, height, length, and width. Of course, it runs into some problem because this book at the end of the Bible is filled with so many symbols and images of dragons, of beasts, of harlots, of cryptic numbers and squared numbers. That it's, it's a highly symbolic book, which means any attempt to kind of literalize the city is problematic to begin with. There are others, because of that, who take this description of a city in a symbolic way, but that carries with it a truth that they find far more glorious and stirring to the soul than material cities. And that is my approach, is that what we have here in these two chapters, because it actually continues into chapter 22, is a symbol, but a symbol that carries with it a powerful truth that should stir up our hope and our understanding of God's commitment to his people and what his presence will mean. And I'm hoping that by the time we get to the end of this message, you will agree with me. Not because I want to rob you of an image in your mind that someday we will dance on the streets that are golden, but because I want you to see the deeper, more stirring truth of what it means and what this city embodies in terms of truth. As I said, our future home is a physical place, but that's not the purpose of this vision to give us a 1,500-mile by 1,500-mile by 1,500-mile city that we'll forever dwell in. I want to submit to you that at the heart of this vision of the city is nothing less than God's unbelievable love for his people. And I'm hoping that you'll feel that by the time you get to the end. So let me wade into this text with you. Just to kind of give you an idea as how it's structured, this final vision. You might call it the, the main verse or idea. It's found here in chapter 21, verse 2, where you have it saying, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now that is kind of the main part of the vision, and it's broken out in two parts in what follows. Namely, the interpretation of 21, 3 through 8, that is, he, after seeing it, then he hears the voice of God declaring the meaning of what this image represents. That's 3 through 8. And then it's picked up and given greater description in chapter 21, 9 through 22, 5. So it's interpreted and described. That's kind of how it's structured. 
And out of this vision, I'm just going to pull for us three truths that I believe this great city embodies for us. The first of which, that it's meant to communicate, is the fact that the New Jerusalem is a people. Not just a people, but a people deeply loved by Christ. Now that sounds cliché. But I'm hoping if I give it some definition, it won't be cliche any longer to your heart. The first clue that we have that this is not a literal city is the fact that it's referred to as a bride. Is that the New Jerusalem is seen as a bride prepared and adorned for a husband. Now that's picked up again down in verse 9 where this city is referred to as the wife of the Lamb. Now, throughout the Bible and Revelation, there's only one thing that the Lamb, who is clearly Jesus Christ, is betrothed to and married to. And it's not a physical city. It's a people. That's true from the very beginning. I mean, in in even framing this vision as marriage uh, draws on a thread of truth that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God gave the first woman and man this, const- this, this, this ordinance called marriage, which as we understand from later on, what the Apostle Paul says, it ultimately was a picture of something much deeper, namely the way God intended on relating to his people as a husband to a bride. That's why throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel are often referred to as the wife of God and then picked up in the New Testament, that the church is the bride of Christ. Well, this is the culminating vision of that union. So it is, it is framed in terms of marriage, a wife for a husband. And the text that follows, back to verse 2, When he hears a loud voice, which I believe amounts to an interpretation of what's taking place, it's that relationship that is central. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, so as he's seeing the new city descend, he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Word dwelling place actually means to tabernacle. Again, picking up lots of Old Testament that behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will dwell with them in a way he's never dwelled with them before, and he will never leave ever again. It's picking up promises to Abraham almost explicitly that I will be to your people a God, and they will be to me a people. This is relationship. It's relationship, not only a relationship, but a very tender and gentle one because here you have the groom drying the the, the tears from the eyes of his bride. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Of God himself healing his bride from, from the scars that she's received in this fallen old world and her wounds her diseases, they were all gone. No longer any slivers of depression or disappointment. But it's all completely healed. This is the work of God, the groom for his bride. So the city is set within the confines of this thing called, called marriage. 
And that's what you have to stop and ponder is this vision is again set in the framework of a groom and a wife. That of all the relationships in our human experience that God chose to convey his love for his people, he would choose the one institution that was intended to be the highest and the happiest of human experience of love and passion and affection of care and protection. That here we find the final union of what the Bible has been surging towards the whole time, the final wedded union between God and his people. That should speak volumes because in terms of love, in terms of commitment, in terms of trust, in terms of affection, There is nothing in our human experience greater than marriage, despite the fact that it's been made hash out of by our culture. And that's what the Lord has used to communicate his affection for his people, is this institution of marriage. That is the final union between God and people, loved, um, the object of his affection. That's the image. There's nothing better or deeper than that. It tells about the heart of God for his people. The heart of Christ for his bride. Only that marriage, that union, will not be threatened by divorce. It will not separate at death. But the joy of it, the intensity of the love communicated in it will go on forever and ever and ever as if forever we will experience nothing but the honeymoon with our Creator. Now, I was reading through my manuscript yesterday, and I got to that part. I just stopped and let it soak in. Because you know what? I know myself. And I know my frailties. I know my heart. And to even begin to grasp that before the foundation of the world, God chose a people that included me. That God in his grace would give his life on a cross to cleanse his people, me. And not just that, but transform me through his spirit. And then one day, resurrect and glorify all of us, his people, as as the object of his loving and powerful and passionate and joyful affection. Now, That, for me, does far more than thinking about pearly gates and dancing on streets of gold. As wonderful as that may be, what really gets my heart is to know that God is passionate. That's that's what the city is. is, is, it is. It is the people of God beloved by Christ. Another truth that comes out of this vision, there's only three, so you're prepared, is that the new Jerusalem is the people radiant with the beauty of Christ. The first one is, it, it, it indicates that we are the object of the love of Christ. This one now that comes out in the vision is that we become the radiant glory of Christ. Again, back up. To verse 2, which is the main verse and then described and broken out in the verses that follow. 
where he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a bride who is described as prepared and adorned. She's been completely beautified. She is gorgeous. But the sense of the text is not by her own hand. But God is the one who adorns and prepares this woman. Ostensibly by the work of the cross in which he cleanses her from sin. By the work of the spirit by which he transforms her. And ultimately by way of resurrection when he glorifies her. That God is the one who does the preparing and the adorning of this people. So that one day the people of God, the church, will not look as it does now. Flawed and imperfect. But gorgeous and beautiful and wonderful and worthy of the kind of intense love of the Lamb. And the adornment of the city, you and me, is then broken out beginning in verse 9. Where we come across these elaborate, lavish descriptions. Where it says, then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven plagues and so forth. Come, I will show you the bride. Now he's going to show the bride in greater detail. The wife of the lamb. He's going to show us who we will become. And he carried me away to the, uh, in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall and so forth, and I'm just going to, I've already read it. But he continues the description in verse 19, saying the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, etc. Gives this lavish description of the city. He's describing the people of the Lord. And he's using the best, most valuable elements that this old decaying world has to offer to try and describe her. That she is nothing less than ravishingly beautiful because she has been adorned so by the Lord himself because of his intense, bottomless, immeasurable grace and love. Taking a woman who was impoverished in sin, choosing her from the foundation of the world, and then dying for her sin, and then raising her up to be amazingly gorgeous. He's describing us. The object of Christ's affection and love raised up by her, by him. Now, I want to say, this is already how the Lord sees us. Because he already sees us as righteous by way of the cross. And this also is how we are to see ourselves. As the righteous bride of Christ. That our self-image is no longer of sinner, but of bride and saint. But the day is coming in which what God has declared to be true now will be made a reality. And God's people will shine like the stars. This is, this is talking about 
the beauty of the bride reflecting the glory of God. And it's radiance just glowing from her. That is you and that is me. The object of Christ's affection and the radiance of Christ's glory. That's the truth. That's, that's where we're headed. That's what we will be on the day of perfection. Beloved by Christ and radiant with Christ. And again, you just think for a moment how far the Lord has stooped in grace to take impoverished people and not just forgive sin, but then to exalt to a place where we radiate God's gorgeous glory. That's unexplainable. And should give you a sense of, wow, God is adorning us in that unimaginable way. That does more for me than golden streets because this is a description of a people. And then one final truth. Not only does this teach us the intense, passionate, committed love of Christ for his people and the fact that we will radiate his glory forever and ever and ever, but the final truth is this is that the new Jerusalem is the people filled, filled with the presence of God in Christ. Point one is that we are the object of his love. Point two is that we will radiate his glory. Three is we will be filled with it. We're given this massive measurement of this city. We're told in verse 15 that the angel who spoke with John, that he had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length and uh, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement takes dimensions of a wall in the city. The fact that this wall is 144 cubits, roughly 216 feet thick or tall, communicates the fact that God's people on this perfect day will be forever secure from any threat of harm. No longer will we ever fear a serpent coming in to the sanctuary of God and deceiving us or causing us to stumble and fall ever again because we will be firmly within the secure arms of our groom, the wall. You don't have to worry about or be afraid of, of, of principalities, powers, or seduction any longer. We are completely and utterly secure and safe and at peace. That's the wall. But then there's the dimensions of this city. 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia, roughly 1,500 miles wide, long, and high. It is a gargantuan edifice, building. The sheer size of it should alert us to the fact that we're not supposed to think of it as literal. I mean, this is kind of a, being a little facetious, but, you know, basically this is how big it would be given the dimensions of current earth. Its height would slam into modern-day low-flying satellites. It's in orbit. 
Not to mention the wall, which is only 216 feet, is grossly disproportionate to the size and height of the city. And then the, the God that I've come to know of creation is a God who is elaborate. He is, he is complex in design and beauty, and this is the most ugly building I've ever seen. <laughs> now, could God create such a thing? Absolutely. Can he choose to make it a perfect, boring block? Yes, he can. But each of these things gives me the sense this isn't what it was intended to connote or, or to say to God's people. So what does it mean? I believe the answer to that question requires us to rewind into the Old Testament where we find the only other cube in the Bible. Perfect cube, perfect in length, all sides being equal. And that is Solomon's temple. Solomon was, received plans from the Lord to build a temple. He built a temple, and in that temple was something called the inner sanctuary, or the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy place, the sanctuary of sanctuaries, the place symbolically where God's glory would be present. And this is what we read about the dimensions of this location where God would dwell. As it says, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. 20 cubits, roughly 30 feet. It would fit at least length and width in this room. Perfectly cubed. But only 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet the most sacred place of God's presence. So sacred that only one man one time a year could go in after making all the necessary purifications. That's how holy it was. A 30 by 30 room devoted to the glory of God, presence of God, into which only one man could approach one time a year because he was sinful. Now if this is what John has in mind in Revelation 21, then what he's saying to all of us and to the people who first read this is that a drastic, amazing, glorious change is going to take place at the end. That in essence, the Holy of Holies in which God's presence dwells, in which people in the Old Testament, really didn't have access to, is blown up beyond almost description. So that the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells and where people used to not have access, now encompasses all of God's people. One commentator goes so far as to say that God's presence, the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary, dominates and fills the entire cosmos. That once it What's at stake here and what's being communicated is my presence will, will completely fill your new home. No longer will there be any place that you can go where you do not have all of me. Forever, fullness of God's presence, all the time inhabiting and indwelling his people. So no matter where we go and what we do, we're constantly, fully, and completely connected to God, always in His presence. There's nowhere we can go we do, where we will have less of Him. That, I believe, is the intent of that cube. We're all going to go in what only one guy, one time a year, could go in. Forever and ever. 
And the rest of the text bears that out because we learned that I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's a temple idea coming out. The city does not need sun or moon or sh- to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp and the nations walk by its light and so forth. In other words, God is perpetually now the luminescent light and glory and dwells God's people all the time in all places. We won't have need of a sun and moon. It doesn't mean they won't exist. Simply it won't be needed. Completely. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? He walked into the temple in his vision and he saw the train of the glory of the Lord just filled the ancient small temple. And he was completely undone. Well, someday in resurrected bodies, this will happen again, only it will fill the earth. That's home. The presence of God filling God's people, reflected in God's people, and ultimately the object of God's passionate, affectionate, caring, committed, eternal Love, that is home. And that's our future. And that is and will be the perfect day. But the great thing about the perfect day that's coming, when that wedded union is brought to consummation, on which we reflect with the gorgeous glory of God and are inhabited by the presence of God, It will never end like the perfect days today do because there will be no night. Never will night fall. Never will it stop. Never will it end. We will never worry about it coming to this sad ending of knowing that, oh, it's gone. My sole hope in each of these three messages and mostly in this one is not to get you to do anything with it but by the Spirit of God to intensify a longing and a hope and a stirring and a longing for that truth and that final consummate face-to-face encounter with the presence of God that should live and indwell every single person who has the Spirit of God in his or her heart. That we would have the same intense passion that a psalmist living in the Old Testament had when he said that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I have sang those words so many times and failed to ponder their meaning that in his heart, Old Testament saying he knew that one day was of such quality in the presence of God that he'd rather have that one 24-hour day than to have a thousand days elsewhere. He'd trade them all for one single day. Because it's so full. That's the heart that needs to burn in God's people is, I would rather dwell in the house of the Lord for one day than thousands elsewhere. The the beauty is that day will be an eternal day. That God would create within us a heart that says, my heart and flesh Cry out for you, the living God. That's what I'm living for. And for those of you who have tasted it, you have tasted the presence of God now by way of the deposit, the Spirit of God. We have the presence now in part. And you have come to taste and know that God's love, when it's brought into human experience, really is better than life. 
You know those moments when the, when the curtain between mind and heart open up and you feel that God's love and power have you secure and there's nothing better? That's just a drip of what's to come. And on that day, it will be overflowing and eternal, and it is what we are meant to live for. I hope God is, by His Spirit, giving you greater hope. This is what we're made for. This is home. And you're praying each day, God, give me this hope. Give me this yearning and longing, because out of that, we will obey and be faithful in the present tense. Will you take a moment to pray over the person next to you. If you're new to us, you're a visitor, you don't need to do this. We don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position. But here we've heard the word. Let's, if you're a follower of Christ, just here with your wife or kids, or you're here by yourself, you can pray by yourself. Just pray, God, give me that longing for the day, the perfect day, the day of consummation, the day I see your face, the day you give us the fullness of what we now have in part. Let's pray that God will fuel our hope for that future vision. So go ahead and let's just pray for each other, and then we will close in worship.